Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Usden, Washington Editor. Lauren Martz, Senior Editor. On this week's pod, after three days of meetings by FDA's Oncologic Drugs Advisory Committee, we asked, will FDA change the accelerated approval paradigm for cancer? Lauren joins us to discuss why NK cell engagers are gaining traction as part of Bispecific's building momentum. And then we head to Europe. Translation in Europe saw more money last year, but where are the new companies? Simone will be digging deep into that. And our deal in focus looks at the largest ever Series A by a Danish company. Steve, let's start with Odak. You spent three long days staring at a screen that often said, we'll be back after sorting out our technical difficulties. And when that wasn't up, the integrity of the accelerated approval pathway was on trial. And when will we get a verdict on what the agency plans to do? Well, so stepping back a little bit, yeah, it was a three-day meeting. It was plagued with technical problems, but they did muddle through it. They talked about six accelerated approval indications for three drugs, all of them checkpoint inhibitors. For all of them, FDA had determined that confirmatory trials had failed to verify clinical benefit. The idea of accelerated approval is that it's a social contract. FDA approves therapies based on data that's likely to predict clinical benefit, such as surrogate endpoints, rather than wait for companies to demonstrate that a drug extends survival or produces some other clinical benefit. The goal is to get drugs that meet serious unmet needs to patients faster, and it's been successful. But the other part of the deal is that companies have to conduct those studies to verify clinical benefit, and if the benefit isn't verified, the accelerated approval is supposed to get withdrawn. So last week, as I said, FDA brought six accelerated approvals to ODAC, and in each case, the confirmatory trials had failed to demonstrate improved survival or other clinical benefit. FDA asked ODAC if it recommended retaining the accelerated approvals or withdrawing them. And to my surprise, it recommended keeping four of them on the market. The two that it recommended withdrawing, it only did that after Richard Pastor, the head of FDA's Oncology Center of Excellence, made it abundantly clear to the committee that he believed those approvals should be withdrawn. He didn't speak up about the other four, and the committee kind of found reasons to keep them on the market. We're going to find out, I think, over the next few weeks or months what FDA is actually going to do. I think it's going to be really important for FDA not only to do whatever it's going to do based on this advice, but also to explain it to the public and to drug sponsors so they understand why FDA did or didn't withdraw these indications. I think it puts FDA in a really tough spot if it withdraws indications or accelerated approvals that ODAC recommended that it retain patients are likely to be really upset about that. If it keeps these drugs on the market that by its own standards, it looks like there's a good argument for saying that they should be withdrawn, it's going to lead critics to say, well, look, FDA's threshold for granting accelerated approval is too low in the first place, and FDA ought to make it more difficult to get drugs approved. That could also hurt patients. It's really difficult to know exactly what they're going to do. But again, I think the really important thing is not only what they do, but how they explain it to the public and to the patient community. And what about for drug companies, Steve? Do you see this as altering their strategies for how they 
get drugs approved, what populations they go in? I think that the meeting reinforces the importance of conducting confirmatory clinical trials, especially when the therapeutic landscape changes and unmet need changes also. One of the things that Pastor emphasized is that it isn't enough for a company to produce a plausible explanation that a particular subpopulation can benefit from its drug. FDA wants to actually see the data. Beyond that, the real lessons are going to only come after we learn what FDA is going to do based on the ODAC recommendations. There's you know, talk out there in the Twitter sphere of companies being reluctant to withdraw accelerated approvals based on requests from FDA and instead pushing to bring their drugs to the ODAC because the ODAC seems to be more liberal about those issues than FDA might be. I, I don't know if that's really true or not, if that's a really viable way to look at things. And I think that we'll have a better idea of that again after we see what FDA does and how it explains what it does. There is a history of FDA changing the accelerated approval pathway when it believes that it isn't working to the benefit of patients. The most dramatic example of that was when FDA stepped in and said that confirmatory trials in most cases have to be underway at the time of approval because some of the companies had found it difficult to recruit patients for confirmatory trials after a drug had already received accelerated approval. Right. One more question, Steve. Obviously, this is focused on oncology. Any sense in whether it would read through or how much to the other disease areas? I don't think that FDA's actions on this will read through to other disease areas, but if Congress takes the notion to change the accelerated approval pathway based on what's happening in oncology, then of course that would have a, a broader read through. And that's something I didn't, I didn't mention, but there are a lot of proposals out there now for Congress, especially in the context of the PDUFA reauthorization, to modify the accelerated approval pathway. Some of those proposals involve changing the incentives for companies to use the pathway. They're calling for CMS to reduce the reimbursement for drugs that receive accelerated approval prior to companies conducting confirmatory trials and getting the accelerated approvals converted to regular approvals. The intention for that is to provoke the companies to do those trials, those confirmatory trials more rapidly. I think that actually what it would do is it would just make the whole accelerated approval pathway far less attractive for companies. And I think actually it would be to the detriment of patients. And Steve, you're not going to go and give us a probability of the congressional action actually happening, are you? No, but it's not outside the realm of the, of the possible. It's not like this is something that, that couldn't happen. It's really kind of all bets are off once they start getting into the PDUFA. And also there's a likelihood that version 2.0 of 21st Century Cures is going to go through in this session of Congress. And it isn't outside the realm of the possible anyway that Congress will in some way modify the accelerated approval pathway. Thanks for that, Steve. Obviously, all eyes on FDA to see what they will do. Lauren, you've been digging into NK cell engager companies the past few weeks. What are you learning about why they are now gaining so much traction as part of this boom in bispecifics that we're seeing? 
Well, I think the boom in biospecifics is one part of it. Just so much interest in that area coming off of the T-cell biospecifics and that technology is huge and it's great, but it's not perfect, especially when it comes to safety. But I think the other part is that people are finally just coming around to NK cells and to innate immunity in general. These have been viewed as the less effective effector lymphocytes for a long time because clinical studies with unmodified NK cells didn't produce very impressive efficacy at the beginning, but there's been some pretty exciting data around CAR NK cells, and I think it's all just coming together to make sense to pursue these NK cell engagers as another avenue to target innate immunity. So I really like this quote that is trying to manipulate the innate immune system is now a big part of the second wave of IO. Interesting that are we now officially in a second wave of IO? Maybe. I think so. I mean, we've got the first generation CAR T's and the first generation checkpoint inhibitors. So I think it's, yeah, it's everyone's looking for the the next thing to combine with these or the next therapy to become a PD-1 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I I, I can buy that completely. But I, I wanted to ask you because it looks like a bunch of the big pharma companies have jumped in with deals but so many of them are with dragonfly Mm -hmm. so what is special about dragonfly do they just have the best connections the best technology and tell us what you think about that i researched this last week i don't know exactly what it is about dragonfly but they do have a different target than anyone else which is interesting and it's a target that's been popular for nk cell targeting therapies it's considered a checkpoint on nk cells but they're going after nkg2d So, Lauren, explain a little bit about the difference between people who are going after NK cell therapies and the bispecifics that, I guess, harnessing NK cells. Are these cell therapies, NK cell therapies, seeing the same kind of enthusiasm or is that lagging? No, I think that's actually probably driving enthusiasm in the NK cell engager by specific antibodies. So this is, FATE has the CAR NK cells, which have had some pretty interesting early clinical data. And I've heard a lot of investors saying that they're just really interested in the cell therapy component of this. The same thing that has really happened with T cells, where CAR T cells are so effective, the potential to go to an antibody structure that accomplishes the same thing by drawing the immune cell to the tumor cell without having to worry about engineering cell therapies and things like that is attractive. So I think that is probably actually driving interest in in case cell engagers. So Lauren, we've talked quite a bit on the pod about Afamed, which began working on this technology long before bispecific antibodies became the cool kid. Who are some of the other players? I think there's at least seven other companies that I was able to find, but some of the interesting ones are Nate Pharma. Sanofi has exercised an option to one of theirs, and I think they're in IND enabling studies and getting ready for the clinic, and, and they're going after a different target than Afimed. They're one of the companies doing the NKP46 rather than CD16, which is the original NK cell engager target. And there's also Dragonfly, as we mentioned, which has their own target as well. And there are some smaller biotechs that are coming up with other preclinical candidates, but Afimed is certainly the most advanced in the clinic. Excellent. Let's head to Europe. Europe enjoyed the global funding bonanza that biotechs around the world, in particular the U.S. and China, enjoyed last year. 
But Simone, you did some digging and you found that the pace of company creation is slowing. What is behind that? Well, I think that what I can say is since 2017, the number of companies formed per year in Europe has gone down. I mean, it went down in 2018, up a bit in 2019, and down in 2020. I look at that and see a slightly reduced pace. Of course, potato, potato, somebody else can say it's all over the place. What is clear is that the amount of money they're raising is going up. 2018 was skewed by this monster raise by a company some of you may have heard of, BioNTech, and it raised all this money, a $270 million Series A, well before this pandemic was, uh, at least on this podcast, or was on the horizon. So it, it raised it for its platform, but that company was a bit of an outlier, and it raised its Series A. It had been going for 10 years with private money. What we saw in 2020 was a really big step up. A couple of things are relevant here. When you look at the medians, the medians for seed and series A companies are going up. And that is regardless of whether they are seeded from academia or spun out from academia and industry. I think the other big take home when I looked at the data is this may not be surprising, but people are always still really interested in the numbers. Some painstaking work went into finding out the origins of the technology of these companies. And really, academia is just driving the whole innovation platform in Europe, much as it does in the US, although I think the numbers are even more weighted towards academia, which represents about 80% of the innovative technology that gets spun into companies. One thing we saw last year is that companies spinning out other companies, right? So as opposed to technology coming from academia, sometimes a company grows its pipeline and then decides to spin out another company from there. So that proportion grew in 2020. I guess you listeners can decide on themselves if that sort of means that the spin outs are getting more mature, if their pipelines are growing. The data are there that the medians are going up in terms of the financings, whether their companies are coming from academia or industry. And industry spin-outs, invariably, the medians and averages, they bring in more money than academic spin-outs. Partly that's because they are further in development, more of them are clinical. But I think partly it's because they have more experienced management teams, commanders, bigger fundings. It'll be interesting, uh, you know, we teed up our deal and focus is the Danish ADC company AdSendo. Now they are a spin out from academia out of the University of Copenhagen. They were then incubated at the Bioinnovation Institute. That is sponsored by Novo Nordisk, but I'd still lump them in with the academia, but they had no trouble seemingly raising the largest ever Series A by a Danish company last week at 62 million. So a couple of things. First of all, I should mention that the time frame for this is 2017 through 2020. So I didn't manage to capture that in these data, but uh, congratulations uh. to them. But I will say all of the ones that we counted from Denmark had come from academia. And since you've gone down this avenue of which countries are we calling out here, I'm going to go into it. 
the UK is just a juggernaut in the context of Europe. The UK in those three years produced 69 companies that raised seed and series A funding. And that is more than twice its closest rival, France, which produced 31 companies. But what is interesting is that the amount of money raised by German companies is even more than the amount raised by British companies. Even if we take out BioNTech, Germany is sort of second place, which means that on average, the German technology is really raising more money. And by Simone's French accent, you can see where her allegiances lie in this discussion. I, I have several passports and I'm not <laughs> going to disclose them. You can all draw your own conclusions. But I will mention once we're going down that road, we did a translational leaderboard. So we looked at the academic institutions that had produced the largest number of spinouts. And what I thought was interesting I mean, apart from the fact that five of the top 15 are from the UK, once we're talking about it. But what I thought was interesting is that none of the top 15 were German institutes, which means that Germany's innovation is coming from lots of different academic organizations, rather than just being focused in one or two heavyweights. So yeah, there are some interesting things in this story, and people always love a little flag next to a country, but it is interesting. It's a very different, we call it more of a spoke model. In Europe, the innovation is really spread much more broadly than in the US where we really have it concentrated so heavily in the Boston, Cambridge and San Francisco hubs. And I know that I'm gonna get calls now about San Diego and Chicago and the Seattle area and all the other regions. Uh, yes, for you, Steve, the DC area, um, <laughs> for you, Lauren, Pennsylvania. There's all sorts of other areas with a lot of innovation going on, but the heavyweights in uh, the US really are pretty clear. And Europe doesn't, it, it has a country heavyweight in the UK, but other than that, it is much more broadly spread. Well, and speaking of planting flags, that's just what Adstendo did with its offering. We took a look at Europe's A-team, Europe's 15 largest biotech Series A rounds since our BCIQ database has been tracking biotech financings, and that goes all the way back to 1994. The round led by Novoseed's ECOS Capital. The round is good for 15th on that list, and it puts the first Danish company on there. And if I squint enough, I think that might be the old Union Jack at the top tied to Immunicore's July 2015 round that brought in 320 million. So that's still our number one, and that is ahead of BioNTech and three British companies in the top 15 for Series A rounds and three German companies. You were also talking about management leading these companies. That's another advantage that AdSendo really has. They have Henrik Stage leading the company. And as many of our listeners will recall, he led Santaris back in the day to its takeout by Roche. Well, that is all we have time for. If we've piqued your interest in European biotech, and all of the hot science coming out of Germany and Denmark and apparently the UK, France and Italy, all these countries. We have our Bioequity Europe conference coming up May 17th 
It'll run for three days. We have more than 140 presenting companies. We've got an awesome lineup of panels and we'll have McKinsey delivering a special report. And best of all, we have a one-on-one -on -one partnering system where if you go ahead and register now, you can already start setting up meetings and holding meetings. Just go to our website, which is bioequityeurope.com. We'll also be taking our BioCentury This Week podcast on the virtual road. We'll have some special guests and we'll be homing in on the key takeaways of each day and previewing the next day. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. 